If you uh, have brought a Bible or have access to one on your phone, you can stop surfing the line and turn it to Psalm 51. I thought we were doing a series on the life of David. We are. It's just today we're going to Psalm 51, which many scholars believe was written uh, as a result of David being confronted by Nathan the prophet who told him a very simple story of a king taking a precious ewe lamb of a servant and uh, offering him for his guest rather than his own flock. And, of course, David reacted in a very self-indicting, self-incriminating way. Uh, and then Nathan said his famous words, thou art the man. So David here, it would seem logical and likely, though most of the Old Testament scholars who may lean a little to the left of Karl Marx would say, no, not necessarily. Now, anytime they do that, I usually take the opposite turn and usually find myself in pretty good company. Whether he did or not, it certainly relates to the grief and lament that David went through. This is one of the first blues songs in the Bible. There are blues songs in the Bible. They're called laments. But this is David's blues as he comes before God uh, to do business with him. And so this is a very familiar psalm. As a matter of fact, I have preached on it twice, and I have searched every corner of every box of every cabinet I have and could not find either one. And so about Tuesday, I decided, well, maybe the Lord wants me to go back and do another bit of work on this. And accordingly, certainly that's what he did. And having the time over Thanksgiving is also good. So hear now the word of the Lord. And notice that the heading to the psalm, by the way, which is not infallibly inspired and errant word, was added later makes mention of the context and occasion of this song. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me behold you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the inclusion of this song in your psalter and how it serves for us in so many ways as an example of what genuine heartfelt depth repentance looks like. And we pray that as we spend time meditating upon this and thinking about it together, that you will show us that you are a God who is able to restore the years the locusts have eaten away. You are a God who whose mercy far outnumbers our sins. You are a God who looks to and fro across the whole world, seeking to show yourself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward you, perfect in brokenness, perfect in repentance. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What a song. And one of the noteworthy features of this psalm is it sort of defies logical, analytical classification. You know why? Because this psalm is full of pathos and full of passion and full of emotion. Now, I know it's strange to hear a Presbyterian talk about feelings, pathos, and emotion. We're not known for that. But by golly, it's a whole big part of our lives. And it's something that God works in as well and sanctifies as well. But if you look at the way the psalm is written, it just piles up. Metaphor after metaphor, command after command. It is very urgent and intense language. And at times seems to interfere with the natural flow of ideas. The plea of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2, for example, is repeated again in verses 7 through 9. Yet surely, uh, it surely is evidence of the depth of the psalmist's mind and heart as his thoughts move backward and forward, exploring despair and shame, self-questioning, and the need for forgiveness and renewal. It becomes those who have never been torn apart by such emotions to question the logical sequence of the psalmist's thought. And so this psalm is powerfully profound and powerfully relevant. Here's what Mark Futato, who used to teach at Westminster West, I think most recently at Reformed Theological Seminary in uh, Orlando, who is a master of the Psalter, says this, Psalm 51 grips our hearts 
as it exposes our need that results from our moral failure in life. So the only thing you've got to be qualified in to benefit from this psalm is failure. Failure. It doesn't help people who don't mess up. This psalm is for people who have messed up royally. This psalm is for people who have lost all hope in their ability to right wrongs, in their ability to fix the situation, in their ability to handle the consequences of their own behavior and failure. Futato didn't say the last three sentences, I did. But we're back to Futato. Our moral failures are not simply a matter of what we do. They're a matter of what we do because of who we are. Our need is for something outside of ourselves to make a radical difference inside of ourselves. Our need is for God, but not just any God. Our need is for the God who will speak the truth about our desperate condition, but will who at the same time also act in love for our salvation. Our need, therefore, is twofold. Verses, in one sense, 1 through 9, focuses on reconciliation. And it's a balanced prayer for this particular reconciliation that David is seeking. A plea for forgiveness, a confession of sin, and another plea for forgiveness. Together, these strophes show the way to reconciliation through these themes. Depend on God's love, confess your sins, and ask forgiveness. And so we've seen already from our outline the fact that this psalm gives us a vocabulary for confession. I remember one time leading a person to Christ and we went to a prayer meeting and he said, I don't know what to do. I've never prayed before. I don't know what to say. Uh, what do I do? And I said, well, uh, just pray what's on your heart. Listen to some of the other people. You'll pick up the rhythm of it. Say what's on your heart. So he said, my name is Jim, Lord, and I live on, he gave his address, so fresh. And he said, I got a problem. He said, I'm so filled with lust, I'm just filthy. It was the most honest prayer. He even said things that embarrassed some of us old veterans. But the guy didn't know any better. And maybe he knew better than some of us who'd kind of lost our way in dealing with those things. And so as a result of that, David does that here. First, he understands that the only thing he's really got left in his life is God's covenant, committed love toward himself. This psalm uses words like kessed. It uses words like hinan. And it uses words like charis or grace or compassion. He's using all of the vocabulary. He starts with himself and he looks at God and he realizes his only hope is the treasure that God is in himself. His only grounds for approaching is God's total grace and mercy. Mercy toward our misery. Our own self-wrought misery and the mess we is in. And that is exactly what David does here. He lays hold desperately, as it were, to the character of God. That's why it's so important for us to know who God is. 
so that we can know how to approach him in prayer so that we won't be speechless and dumb before him but be able to articulate be able to pray not only expressing our mind but also our hearts and David is such a template for that such a model for that in this prayer our moral failures will keep us from ever approaching God unless we are first persuaded that he loves us. Calvin would say it this way, you will never attempt to know God unless you already know he welcomes sinners, that unless you already know that he loves you. It is significant that the psalm does not begin with my sins, but have mercy. Have mercy. When I went to seminary, one of my good friends was a man named Amos Bridges. And Amos Bridges was the best pool player on the campus at RTS. And I have to say, there weren't very many that were any good. I was pretty good. So I used to play Amos with Amos all the time. Uh, we'd play pool. And I would say nine out of ten times, he beat me. But I beat him one time, and I'll never forget him slamming his cue down, looking at me, eyeballing me, eyeball to eyeball, and saying, have mercy. <laughs> and I would hear him often in seminary class when one of the professors was lecturing on sin and sinfulness and the brokenness of human beings, and I'd hear old Amos in the back going, have mercy. I'll never forget that, because Amos understood one thing. God has no reason to listen to me. I can't command God to pay. I, I can't obligate God to have. The only grounds I have is who he has revealed himself to be, is a God rich in mercy, unlimited in mercy, infinite in mercy. We can never out the mercy of God. And so as a result, David prays this way. In fact, the opening uh, line piles up the language of love before ever mentioning his sin. Have mercy because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. There is a quality in the heart of God that perceives our brokenness and is moved toward it. Most of the time when people fail, people don't run to them, do they? They kind of stand back and go, wow, I didn't know that he had a problem like that. I didn't know he would do something like that. And, and we don't know, but the, the only person we can run to when we've messed up is God in some respects. Because he has an outgoing compassion, a deep connection to our brokenness and our misery. How we view God determines how we respond to him. God is just, absolutely just, absolutely pure, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. But he's also merciful, and he is love. And because he is love, we can draw near to God and remember that he will draw near to us in mercy. David was fully aware of his sin, no question about that. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he had taken uh, her husband Uriah and moved him up to the heat of the battle in the front lines, making sure he would be killed. And David's sins plagued his conscience day and night. Look at his language. What troubled him most deeply was that his sin was against God. Even in 2 Samuel, after Nathan confronts him, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. That is not to say 
that he had not sinned against Bathsheba and he had not sinned against Uriah the Hittite. But it is to say that ultimately any sin against anyone else is a sin against God. It is a violation of his law. David uses in this confession the three major Hebrew words for sin. Kata, which means to miss the mark. He uses the word for iniquity, pashar, which means crookedness or, or uh, warpedness. And he uses uh, the word transgression, which basically means to violate a boundary. David had done all of it. He had done all of that in the face of God. He had rebelled against the face of God who had entrusted him with so many gifts and so much power in a position. But he abused that power. He abused those people. And he stands guilty for God, cloaked before God, cloaked in shame. The point is that ultimately and most importantly, sin is always against God. If you kill another person, what are you really doing? You're killing the image of God in a person. That's fratricide. That's not only uh, killing a brother, but it's deicide. Killing someone who bears the image of God in murder. Sin always affects other people. The point is that it's against God first and that God's will is violated. And David knew that when God spoke in judgment against him, you are the man, God was right and he was just. David wasn't negotiating here. David wasn't pulling our friend Adam and Eve in the garden by passing the buck and blaming someone else. See, this is what we do. We're caught. We know we're caught. We know we're wrong, but we can't bear to admit it. And we have to blame everyone else in the universe other than ourselves. And I want to say to you in the fine prophetic tradition and to myself, you are the man. You are the woman. You are the person who has sinned against God. And I find so often, this is how I know there's sin in my life. There's many ways. But one of the major ways I know there's sin in my life is I become intensely critical toward other people. And I begin to spot your flaws. And I can see them, man. I can see everybody else's sin so crystally clear except my own. And it's almost as if David had finally seen in his own life, and in his own brokenness, there's a difference, again, between blaming everyone else and taking ownership that God, when he speaks to us, to confess your sins means to acknowledge that God is right, that he is just. When he called it sin, it was sin, and it's my sin, and I did it. The point again is David asks for forgiveness and his plea for forgiveness is incredibly intense as his confession of sin seven times David asks for forgiveness in one way or another the stanza, stanza here is framed by the pleas to have his sin blotted out removed David asked to have his sins washed away he also asked God to purify him from his sin he pleads for God to quit quit taking notice of his sin in verse 9 there's a difference between saying I'm sorry and saying please forgive me 
David shows us here that forgiveness is the path to reconciliation and the only path to reconciliation. You know, I had a guy come up to me one time and told me that he forgave me for something and I didn't even know I'd done anything. But he said, I forgive you and it made me mad. I mean, not just a little bit mad. The longer I thought about it, the madder I got. The redder in the face I became. And anger was eating me up. And all of a sudden I thought about it and I realized, okay, if he said, I forgive you, then he means I've done something offensive to him. And so I thought and thought and thought, what in the world have I done? So I went back and asked him. And he said to me, well, it's just your personality. I don't like your personality. <laughs> I said, well, I don't like you either. <laughs> I love you and Jesus and all that, but I don't like you. But you've got to learn to forgive and extend forgiveness and receive forgiveness. And that's what David does. There's no issue here of arguing about it. The relationship is broken. And they're broken between people and God. And David knew that his problem ran deeper than a particular sin or even a set of sins. He claims he was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, David acknowledges his problem was a whole life conditioned by sin from the very beginning and earliest memory. And so his confession was a way of not just saying that he had sinned, but that he was in his very being and existence a sinner. David needed more than reconciliation, as foundational as that was. He also needed transformation to the very core of his being. Transformation comes from depending on God's love for us and his forgiveness, which comes through confession. But David realizes he doesn't only need reconciliation with God for his sin, but he needs transformation. It kind of sounds like David is saying, I need justification, but I also need sanctification. And these two things are not separate. I need for God to declare that I am forever right with him upon the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who obeyed in my place the law of God in complete fulfillment and perfection, who died because I'm a sinner and took my sin of disobeying God's law and sinning against him upon himself and offered himself a sacrifice. And that's what David gets in verses 1 through 9. But what he's praying for in the next verses is sanctification. I need to be changed. I need to be renewed. I need you to create in me a clean heart. Do you see that language? That's the language of what we would call sanctification. The second stanza does focus on that. Three strophes show how transformation moves from the self, verses 10 through 12, to other sinners in verses 13 through 15, and finally to the whole community in the last two ver three verses. We are perpetually confronted with the temptation to blame others in our circumstances for our own trouble, so we frequently pray this way. God, would you change that person or would you change my circumstances so I don't have to be around that person? You know, if you want to, go on and take them to heaven. Just get them out of here. 
I don't want to have to deal with this. Maybe I'm talking too much about my own prayer life here. So we, we frequently pray that God would change the other person or change our circumstances, and David resists that temptation. He prays, create in me a clean heart. Change me, says David, because I am the problem. The problem is me, as Pogo said. I am the problem. Change me. The very word he uses here, create, is the very word used in Genesis 1.1. Bereshit, Adonai, bara, hashamayim, ha'eretz. That's Hebrew. I'm not speaking in tongues. And what that word says, in the beginning, Bereshit, Elohim, God, bara, created, the heavens, Hashamayim, and the earth, Ha'eretz. Paid all that money for Hebrew, got to use it sometime. <laughs> bara means to speak to nothing and create something out of nothing. But that's not the only meaning of the word bara. Bara can also mean to create over again or renew something already created. And David is saying, my heart is filled with shame and filth, and I need you to recreate me. There's something in me that's badly wrong. And I need more than just forgiveness. Change me, he says. David realizes that the word bara in Hebrew is used exclusively in reference to God. He's the only one who can do it. You can't do it yourself. There's no DIY in the Bible. He's asking God to do something for him that he will never be able to do for himself. Only God can make the internal changes that David needs. It is David's responsibility to plead with God for these changes. Even though David uses all these imperatives in the face of God, he's not commanding God to do anything. He's pleading with God to do something. Pleading. Because he's sick of himself. Reminds me a lot of uh, one of my favorite quotes by Lewis Smedes, who says in the book Shame and Grace, he says, our struggle with shame leaves us with this nagging question. Is there a viable alternative to the shame-induced ideals of secular culture and graceless religion? Is there some kind of third way, a way of healing the disgrace of shame? Here's the good news. There is. It's called grace. Grace is the beginning of our healing because it offers the one thing we need most, to be accepted without regard to whether we are acceptable. Grace stands for gift. It is the gift of being accepted before we become acceptable. The so many people think you have to earn grace. And that's antithetical. It's an oxymoron. The surest cure for the feeling of being an unacceptable person is the discovery that we are accepted by the grace of the one whose acceptance to us matters most in the universe. Now listen to this. Grace overcomes shame not by uncovering an overlooked cachet of excellence in ourselves, but simply accepting us, the whole of us, with no regard to our beauty or ugliness, 
our virtue or our vices, we are accepted wholesale, accepted with no possibility of being rejected, accepted once and accepted forever, accepted at the ultimate depth of our being. We are given what we have longed for in every nook and nuance of every relationship we've ever had. We are ready for grace when we are bone-tired of our struggle to be worthy and acceptable. After we have tried too long to earn the approval of everyone important to us, we are ready for grace. When we are tired of trying to be the person somebody somewhere sometime convinced us that we had to be, we're ready for grace. When we have given up all hope for ever being an acceptable human being, we may hear in our heart the ultimate reassurance we are accepted, accepted forever, accepted by grace, by the one who matters most in the whole universe. And that's what David came to see. David and his renewal will be the result of the presence, God, the presence of God's Holy Spirit. David prays that God does not remove the Holy Spirit from him. David may have had in mind the removal of what we might call the spirit of office, that is the spirit of being a king, who equipped David for carrying out the responsibilities, or what we might call the spirit of fellowship who would be grieved and distanced by sin. Isaiah 59 says our sin has separated between us and God. The presence of the Spirit would not only affect a renewal, but would also affect a willingness in David to obey. This would be coupled with a restoration, the joy that was already anticipated in chapter, uh, verse, Psalm 51, verse 8, where he says, Oh, give me back my joy again. Give me back my joy again. Let me rejoice. The transformation of self never ends in the self. Sometimes in our sanctification as Christians, we are so selfish and so self-centered about it. I want to be holy, but I don't want to mess with people. So why don't you just go be a monk somewhere or go sit on a cactus out in the desert somewhere? That'll make you holy in more ways than one. All I would say, may have to edit that out. <laughs> David resolves to pass this transformation on to others. He uses the word for rebel in 51.13 and uh, from the same uh, roots of the vocabulary for sin in the first stanza. He was therefore not speaking of these rebels with disdain. Rather, he spoke as one sinner to an, uh, another. His desire is not to teach them a thing or two. Instead, he wants to teach them that God's way of reconciliation and transformation, that they too might return to God, live according to his ways, and have joy in their lives. David will teach them as he joyfully sings of God's great forgiveness, as he sings God's praise. This praise would no doubt recount his distress, his plea for reconciliation and forgiveness, according to the typical pattern of psalms of thanksgiving. The instruction would no doubt have taken place probably in the temple and in the context of sacrifices. But sacrifices never please God that don't please God. And that he does not want are the sacrifices of formalism. What is formalism? It's going through the outward form 
without having the heart engaged. It's what a lot of religious people do. They don't bother themselves too much with the personal. You know, I've been in groups of Christians. I've, I've heard preachers and teachers in groups of Christians who teach and preach, but it's all outside. It's never dealing. It never gets at the heart. It never gets at where you live. And that is theologically called formalism. And so God's not against sacrifices. He ordained them under the old covenant. Psalm 50 teaches that God wants sacrifices from a grateful heart. Psalm 51 tells us that God wants sacrifices from a broken and repentant heart. Isaiah preached the very same message. The very same message. He will not accept their sacrifices, but he blesses those whose hearts are broken with the clear implication that he will accept their sacrifices. To have a renewed heart created in us, we must first have a broken heart, a heart that is humble and contrite before the magnitude of our sin and even greater, the magnanimity of God's love. That's what draws the heart of God to us, is our brokenness, not our fitness. And so David speaks of these things, and he realizes that the transformation of himself and others culminates in the transformation of the entire community of Zion, the impregnable city of the great king. Now, many scholars believe that verses 16 through 19 were edited in by a later writer after the exile and the return from exile. You asking me? I don't know. Don't really care. Here's why. It's still true. Whenever it was written, still part of God's word, whenever it was written, that... How do you create a culture of grace? How do you create a community of the gospel? When people see broken people made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, when people see the reality of the gospel, people not boasting in themselves and what they have done, but rather boasting in the cross, as Paul said, God forbid that I should boast or glory. Save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom? The world is crucified to me and I to the world. The question arises then, how can God be just and forgiving at the same time? And the answer lies in the sacrifices referred to over and over in the Psalms. The sacrifice was a substitute for the sinner that bore the just punishment of God so that the sinner might be reconciled and transformed. The Apostle Paul understood this when he quoted part of Psalm 51.4 in his argument for the universality of human sinfulness. Universal sinfulness is the prelude to Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone and the sacrifice of Christ as our substitute. Because God punished Christ in our place, he is entirely just forever to forgive us our sins. This is the theological background of the second half of Romans where Paul develops this teaching on sanctification or transformation. Because of all that God has done for us through his mercy and his great love for us in Christ, we give our whole lives to God as living sacrifices that he will be pleased and will transform us 
according to his will. So what about you? What about you? Do you have regular sessions of pouring out your soul before the Lord? Do you take your sins, your failures, your brokenness, your despondency, your guilt, your despair, the blues, do you take them to him? Do you plead with him to wash your soul? One place he says, purge me with hyssop. Now that comes from the Old Testament sacrifices and it comes from actually Passover where the children of Israel were told to apply blood to the lentils of the doorpost. And what did they use to do that? The hyssop. Because the hyssop was a limb off a plant that had lots of buds on the top so you could dip it in the blood and wipe the blood on the lentils. David is saying, apply the blood to me. The blood washes me whiter than snow. I asked someone when we were in Israel, does it ever snow here? And they said, oh, yes, it does. Especially up on Mount Hermon. And we saw Mount Hermon as we were traveling. And they said, just like Mount Charleston, you can see it from around here. And you look up there, and if, you, if the, the sun is right, and the time of day is right, it is blinding. It, the light is blinding. You have to turn your head or stop driving. Hopefully you stop driving. David says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. I will be brilliant, brilliantly thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly, he means, I mean from top to bottom. Do you do that? Do you pray that way? Do you live that way before the face of God? Have you been justified by his grace? Are you being renewed and transformed in sanctification? Do you plead with God to change you? Do you blame everybody else for what's wrong? Or do you deal with God face to face and before the face of God? That's one of the great slogans of the Reformation is quorum Deo, before the face of God. We live out our relationship with him before his face. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. It is... So much more than one can say in this amount of time. And yet what was said, I hope, finds its way past our defenses and into our hearts and will bring about reconciliation on the one hand and transformation on the other. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who, to whom you have restored the joy of salvation. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.